From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, we have two guests from the Thurber House series. First, Kati Martin, who visited this fall, and we have an excerpt from my discussion with Chris Cleave. For more information, visit www.writerstalk.org. Kati Martin has written for The New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, The Times of London, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and Vanity Fair. She is the author of eight books, including Hidden Power, Presidential Marriages That Shaped Our History, A Death in Jerusalem, The Great Escape, Nine Jews Who Fled Hitler and Changed the World, and her latest, Paris, A Love Story. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Doug. Well, you arrived in Paris as a Hungarian refugee. You attended universities there and earned an MA in International Relations from George Washington University later. Tell me, though, as the speaker of at least three languages, right, (laughs) Hungarian, French, and English, what were you like as a young writer? I really had not a clue what I was like, because like most of us, I've been living life fast forward until uh, last year when in the wake of the entirely unexpected death of my husband, Richard Holbrook, I had to pack up all my belongings and move to a new place after after 27 years of living in the same apartment in New York City. And I found a box of letters that I'd written as a student at the Sorbonne to my parents. And I came face to face with the budding writer, Kati, as an 18-year-old, full of big dreams and rather grandiose, and very much under the influence of the beauty that I was surrounded by in Paris and on my own for the first time. And of course, Proust came into my life in a major way, seeing everything through a very gauzy romantic lens. But that was then tempered by Montaigne, who, as you probably know, is was the first blogger. He coined the term essay, which in French means a trial. And his essays are like blogs because they're entirely self-absorbed, self-referential, as blogs tend to be. And I just completely fell in love with Montaigne. So those are the two sources of my Parisian literary experience. And then, of course, a decade after that first chapter in Paris, which ended, by the way, very abruptly with the student rioting in my particular neighborhood, the Latin Quarter, it brought back very bad memories of my first actual revolution as a small child in Budapest, the Hungarian Revolution, which ended in bloodshed. So for me, this was not a student romp, as it was for most of my classmates at the Mm -hmm. Sorbonne. This was something much more serious. So I fled, pledging to come back. Ten years later, I'm back as an ABC News foreign correspondent. And all of this I write about in Paris, a love story, which really encapsulates three chapters of my Parisian experience. The first as a student, second as a foreign correspondent, when I collided with the force that was Peter Jennings, whom I ended up Mm-hmm. marrying and we raised a family together and that sort of derailed my brilliant career as a broadcaster as you know Doug I started at uh, National Public Radio right. in 1971 you were a researcher on all things considered while I was still in school all things considered was about to go on the air I believe it was 1972 there were six of us that put on all things considered how did you get and into that um, going for coming back and then going to school what led to NPR at that stage I'm the child of journalists my, right. my 
mother and father were both heroic foreign correspondents, jailed when I was six years old. They were jailed. Supposedly being CIA spies. Right, in Cold War Budapest. I didn't really see any other career for me. There was no hope from the beginning. Yeah, it was was in the DNA. It was in the bloodstream. My parents did not encourage this. They were hoping that I would find more respectable work perhaps as a diplomat. But I kind of compensated for that by marrying a diplomat. 15 years after marrying Peter Jennings, uh, this is not a story of my marriages, although it seems to be going that way, but I married Richard Holbrook, the great diplomat, shared an extraordinary adventure in Paris. So the point of this book really is that every good thing in my life seems to happen in Paris, so that when catastrophe hit last year and Richard died suddenly, I escaped to Paris, which had so many great associations with my writing life and with life in general. Okay. I'm curious that one of the second chapter is you had gone back to Paris as an ABC foreign correspondent. Tell me about that movement. So you're going from NPR to ABC, you're going from radio to television, as I understand it. How did that work for you as a journalist? What happened when you went to Paris that second time? I was actually en route to become ABC's bureau chief in Germany because I spoke German having been raised in Budapest, and then we escaped to Vienna from Budapest, and so I picked up German as a child. English is my third language. How am I doing? Very, very, very yeah? well. Okay, right. good. It, it reminds me of that old joke, three languages, your trilingual two, by one, you're American. Yeah. If you only have one language, you're an American, and you're killing it. You were just killing it. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. I I was fishing for that one, (laughs) but you came through for me. Thank you. To get back to the transition from being a radio to a television reporter, I actually enjoyed being on NPR much more than uh, than ABC. Uh, I was NPR's first diplomatic correspondent. Mm-hmm. And running around town with my little Sony tape recorder was much more fun than schlepping around the globe with a crew and always having to look good, you know? Mm-hmm. Television is, is a visual medium. Then you also went from there to books. Yes, now ABC. that was the biggest transition. Right. Because that was of necessity because I found that I was no longer thrilled to chase hijackings that were generally over by the time I got there there once I had little kids. And I decided that I would try to make a living as a writer. I wrote a piece while I was nursing my first child at home and sent it off to Atlantic Monthly, the magazine I most admired. It was a profile of Pope John Paul II. You wrote a profile of Pope John Paul II while you're from home nursing a child. Yes, and guess what? Before the internet. Okay. Yes, and they made it the cover. It was called (laughs) The Paradoxical Pope. So I said to myself, this isn't that hard. So I did not go back to ABC. I decided that I would try my hand as a full-time writer. And the second piece I submitted for Atlantic was also a cover. And that changed my life. That was a profile of Raoul Wallenberg. And I got a call from the great Random House editor, Bob Loomis. And he said, "Uh, how fast can you turn this into a book? And I knew nothing about book writing. I had just pulled off this thing where from writing a minute and a half scripts for radio and TV, I'd written an actual Atlantic piece that was already climbing Everest. And now comes the possibility of a book. So knowing nothing, this was around Memorial Day, I said by Labor Day. And he said, fine, uh, contract on the way. 
How hard did he laugh when you said that? Well, he must have have suppressed it on on the phone. But of course, I really pissed off a whole lot of writers because I delivered the manuscript thinking that that's what writers did. Of course, they don't. That was the last time I did that. I've written seven books since Wallenberg, and they average four years. Okay, I was going to say, what was your process for that one? When you're diving into something as big as a book project, on that tide of a deadline, how did you approach it? Well, I handed the baby to... Peter, and said, see you in September. A a friend loaned me a farmhouse in the English countryside in Hampshire, and I literally wrote day and night. And I I was researching at the same time, so I was making side trips. I don't want to come across as the wicked, unfit mother, because Peter and Lizzie, my infant, came on the weekends. (laughs) So I did not see them. But it was pretty rigorous. It was pretty rigorous and so unnecessary. But because I'd been trained as a reporter, you know, dead deadlines, deadlines. I didn't understand that writers don't have deadlines. If they have deadlines, they don't meet them. You know, but that's the unique position of a female writer, because there's no male writer in the Mm. world that would have felt that pressure of, I handed off a baby. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really a oh. difficulty that... Yeah, that I never women... did that again, though. When my second child, Christopher, was born a year later, I never again took on an assignment that would rob me of those thrilling early months. But I was trying to prove myself as a writer, first of all, to myself. And sec- and after Wallenberg was published by Random House to very good reviews, I kind of felt a little more comfortable. And that was followed, actually, by a novel, the only novel I've written. American Women, published in um, 1987. An American Woman, yes. Uh, an American and it's, it's meant to be an ironic title, because in those days, I felt very schizophrenic about my identity. Was I Hungarian? Was I American? I hadn't been an American long enough to feel comfortable in my identity, and I was working it out in that book, I had made some fairly dramatic discoveries in researching Wallenberg about my own history. In the middle of an interview with a woman who'd been rescued by Wallenberg, I discovered that I was not who I thought I was. I was not Roman Catholic. The lady in question said, Wallenberg unfortunately arrived too late for your grandparents who perished in the first deportation to Auschwitz by Eichmann. And that's how I discovered my own roots. And my parents didn't really want to talk about that. So what does a writer do? I turned it into a novel, An American Woman. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Thurber House author, Kati Martin. More information is available at www.writerstalk.org. Now, tell me about that transition, because there's another big Mm. one. There's another big (laughs) part of going from writing the nonfiction Mm -hmm. book about Wallenberg to the fiction book. You gave yourself more time. Yes. Well, (laughs) by now I had two little kids and a pretty high-maintenance husband who was traveling all over the world. Peter was by now ABC's superstar, and, you know, I was holding down the fort. But my advice to writers or people who are thinking of a career in writing is to write every day, whatever the circumstances, and however lousy it is, because it's really just plunging in that's so difficult. It's that it's the blank screen or the empty page that's difficult. I really find that once I get past that hurdle, once I have a draft, and this Paris, a love story, I wrote in one month, actually. But it arose from a journal that you were keeping um, after the death of Richard Holbrook, right? Yes. I couldn't sleep at night, so I would write down the day's events. And the day's events featured unbelievable outpouring of grief from around the world. 
I kept getting letters, I mean, by the hundreds, and I, you know, plugged myself on the living room floor and read and wept and tried to answer them as they deserved to be answered. You know, from people who wrote on bits of notepaper to, to royal stationery, Richard made a deep impression on so many people. And of course, I was reeling from the shock of uh, this entirely unexpected blow. The combination of the journal that I kept, plus the letters that I discovered when I started preparing to move, plus love letters that I discovered in the same pruning process between Peter and me, and then going off because I just couldn't pick up the thread of my life in New York. Uh, it was just too full of ghosts. So I went off to Paris, and all of this I braided into a narrative and this is the first book that I've written that I didn't submit a book proposal for. You see, I'm already having trouble explaining it to you because it's so many things uh, woven together into a single book. And so I just decided it's easier just to let this unfold, to write it. And that's what I did. I wrote it cold and I wrote it in a month and it, it poured out of me. And of course, then I polished it and reworked it. But this was the most personal and painful, but at the same time, honest. Mm -hmm. um, so book. how did that feel in terms of being such a different experience for you? From the day-to-day -day experience mm -hmm. of writing, it sounds like it's unlike, say, the novel where you may have said, here's the structure of what I have mm -hmm. in advance. With this, you're sitting down, you're writing for you really painful experiences and mm -hmm. going back. What keeps you going back to it day-to-day? Well, in addition to being in grief, I'm also a writer and a very disciplined writer. I don't think that you can write eight books in 25 years if you're not very disciplined. You know, it's not like I feel like writing every day. I, I don't. But I, I keep bankers hours. I feel that I have to. And also, I didn't want to, this will sound strange, but as I had been touched by mortality, Richard's death, I had never wanted to hold on to life closer than, and still, than after that blow. And therefore, I wanted to turn this shattering experience into something that was positive. And this is the result of that. So I've turned something that was pretty negative, a death, of a loved one into a creative work. Right, and you had a interview in Vogue in which you said, by writing this book, I am taking ownership of my life. Yes. Tell me about yeah. that in terms of what was it that made you say, okay, now I own it and now it's yes. come back to me through the writing. It's so true. Well, first of all, when you're married to such larger-than-life, to use the cliché, characters as Peter Jennings and Richard Holbrook, you sometimes lose track of the fact that this is your life, too. Well, I was married to Peter for 15 years, Richard 17, so there's my adult life. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find the me before Richard, before Peter, before children, the me that was a girl in Paris, wide open to all sorts of new experiences and sensory pleasures. And in Paris, I did. And plus, I could, in narrating my life so far, I kind of made sense out of things that struck me as sort of chance events in my life. Now it's in a narrative that somehow makes sense. And one more thing, and that is that it's also a way of keeping the missing, the people I've lost, my children's father and Richard, of giving them permanence 
they're here. They're in this book, vividly captured as fully human beings, not as the sort of marble characters that people like to think that they are, because they were not. They were very real people. You mentioned that in an interview with USA Today, quote, my life has not been perfect. I want people to see the full story. And then later on, so folks, let's get real here. This is a human account of a life in the stream of history, full of pain, full of struggle. Yes. How do you negotiate that, though, as an author? you Were there things, and I'm not asking you to say what they are, that you backed off from and said, this is as far as I want to go here. I'm not going to go any further. And I'm curious about just the general outlines of what that means for you as a writer. Of course, this is not a tape recording. This is not a tell-all <laughs> book. This is, you know, after so much writing. I, I know how to shape a story. It's not an incoherent blurting out. Here's everything that's happened to me, the good, the bad, the ugly. It, I tried, however, to find themes that I thought were universal, that readers could identify with, that, you know, pain that I experienced, which I think you might have experienced as well. So it isn't just, you know, my little story. It's about love and loss and trying to get beyond the loss to another place. This is not a book about grief. This is a book about the fact that loss sooner or later finds all of us, Mm -hmm. usually when you least expect it. And what do you do with that loss? So it is, yes, an honest account, but it is not a tell-all by any means. I, I was keenly aware. I'm writing about my children's father. I needed their permission to do that. They were my first readers. So, you know, I told them, if there's anything in here that bothers or upsets you, speak up now. And they said, no, Mom. Were you with them when they read it, or did they go off and read it? Did you get to gauge no, their I mean, reaction? No, that would have made them very self-conscious. <laughs> yeah. no. no, but they had a very positive reaction, both of them. And frankly, that, for me, was more important than the New York Times review. What do you want your readers to get from this book? You say it's about mortality. It's about the presence of that and how mm-hmm. it touches everybody. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean for you in terms well, of readership? it's the most profound book I've written because it is about life and death and life after death. And I want people to feel more open about the presence of death in our midst because it is part of the human condition. It's not something that we should pretend only happens to others and only happens in old age because Richard was was in full life and and wasn't sick. You know, life can turn in a heartbeat and as cliched as this may sound, I believe absolutely and try to live this, that the present is the only thing that we can really count on. And therefore, I feel I have an enhanced sense of life So in other words, loss, grief should not destroy us. On the contrary, it should should reinforce our zeal for life. And it's not easy to feel that way because such a loss is physically devastating, depleting. I still don't have quite my energy back after a year and a half. So where are some of the places, and this is the next to last question, where are some of the places you went in Paris, maybe some of the little known places that established that for you, that brought that sparkle back Uh, for you? Well, when you open Paris, a love story, you'll see right away a map 
I drew a map of, of all those places that were meaningful during my three stages in Paris. First as a student, which was largely centered around the Latin Quarter on the left bank, around the Sorbonne, and in the very semi-seedy bars and cafes. Semi-seedy. Se- Looking yeah, back, you could say yes, semi-seedy. semi-seedy. In, in those days, I thought they were the height of luxury. And I'm now again living in that neighborhood. I'm living on the same street as the Sorbonne. So I've kind of come full circle. And when I'm in Paris, I really kind of live the way I did then, very simply, at a much slower pace than my normal New York pace. My second Parisian chapter was on the right bank when I was a foreign correspondent and ABC's bureau was in a very posh uh, neighborhood off the Champs-Élysées. And Peter and I used to go to not even semi-seedy bars, but very upmarket places. Non-seedy. Non-seedy. But I think my comfort zone is on the left bank, a little more bohemian, kind of an antidote to my very grown-up life in Manhattan. And the final question is, who are you reading right now? Are you, with all the traveling that you're doing for the book, do you have in the hotel nightstand, who's going to end up there? You know, of course, I'm already thinking about my next book. And my next book, which I'm sorry I cannot yet reveal because I haven't even told my editor yet, but it's... You can whisper it. It's <laughs> I'm very much drawn to the Cold War and the history of the brutality of that period, which I don't think has been fully assimilated, worked over by us Americans. We've covered the Second World War. We've covered the Vietnam War. But somehow those 50 years, which were really devastating not on the geopolitical level only, not, you know, the shenanigans of the Kremlin and the White House, but on individuals. And since I was a little kid caught in that, and I've written about my parents' experience in prison when I was a kid, but I'm drawn back to that. And if I were to tell you what I'm reading, it would reveal my angle on that. But suffice to say that 20th century history and its unbelievable brutality. This is Europe, after all, the the center of civilization, in quotation marks. How could this have happened? And by the way, Washington, the United States, wasn't... It was no purer. No, not not really much. Well, we will look forward to that. So thank you, Kati Martin, for being here today. And the book again is Paris, A Love Story. For more information from my guests, visit www.writerstalk.org. I am joined by Chris Cleave, whose debut novel, Incendiary, won a 2006 Somerset Maugham Award, was shortlisted for the 2006 Commonwealth Writers Prize. His second novel, Little Bee, was a New York Times number one bestseller. His most recent novel is Gold. Welcome, Chris Cleaves, to Writers Talk. Thank you very much, Doug. Nice to be here. Tell me about your most recent novel, Gold. Gold is about a rivalry between two women at the very top of their game. They're top-level Olympic cyclists, and they have in common with very few people on Earth this one fact that in order for them to succeed, everybody else must fail. Mm. It's an extraordinary job. And I became fascinated by their characters and about how they prosecute those kinds of intense grudges, rivalries, against the people that they know best, the people that they've come up with in the sport. So it's basically, what, what sport is asking you is how badly do you want to beat your best friend? The question that that throws up is what comes first in your life, ambition 
or love. And that's what gold is an examination of. What was the start of this novel? Did you have a grudge against someone that you ran with? I don't have a competitive bone in my body, and I think that's why I was so <laughs> fascinated by it. I mean, as a writer, it's not necessary for anyone else to fail in order for you to do your best work. Mm -hmm. you know, success is a very relative thing in writing. You're talking about, you know, am I proud of that piece of work? And no, I... I I've always been fascinated with people I can't be and things I can't do. My relationship with sport is very simple. I've been very bad at it from a very early age. I had a, a PE teacher at school. Um, do you say PE yes. in America? Yeah, a physical education teacher. And he wrote the following on my end of year school report. Uh, Christopher tries very hard. <laughs> but uh, He might have meant that in a, in a good way. Uh, sure. sure. Well, when he gave you a, a D was, or a non-passing grade. He was giving me the special sticker for effort you know, <laughs> rather than achievement. Now, I'm fascinated by those people. And I wanted to know what drove them. Sport is such a huge thing in life, and I think to ignore it as a writer, you know, the, the traditional thing that, that writers do with sport is to write it up as non-fiction or to ignore it completely, you know, and pretend that people don't do it. Um, and yet, you know, half the people on earth are either doing sport or following sport, and it's a big thing, and I wanted to find out you know, what, it, what it feels like to succeed and to fail at something that is so important culturally. Is there a particular attraction to you with speed biking, or could it have been anything that just happened to be something you settled on? Yeah, good question. I auditioned lots of different sports for it. Did they know they were auditioning? Did you tell them when you went to them? Yeah. Bizarrely, the, the international sports federations don't actually <laughs> consider That's me weird. To be an enormous uh, influence on them. But they, yeah, I, uh, I, I looked at the athletes who did it, and I started to interview athletes. And um, I thought about rowing, but the tactics of rowing aren't very interesting to write about. Rowing, although the athletes are terrific and very bright, um, the tactic is very much, you know, turn up to the rowing race at about the time the rowing race starts, or ideally a few minutes before, <laughs> and, uh, wait, wait for the gun to go off and, and row really, really, really hard until someone... <laughs> crosses the finish but that's got to be biking right i mean you no. uh, so what is the Far difference with, with yeah. biking velodrome cycling has all kinds of tactics and strategies and it's one of those um sports where the strongest person doesn't always prevail mm. um like tennis it's adversarial it's gladiatorial it's a game that you win almost before you step out into the arena if you can make the other person believe that you're going to beat them and so it was interesting to write about the psychology of the people involved. Mm -hmm. They had a great combination of an explosive physicality, which was fun to write about, and a tactical acumen, which was fascinating to write about, and a psychological complexity, which was very compelling to write about. And so having tried several sports out for size, um, track cycling in the velodrome was to me the most psychologically compelling and aesthetically perfect sport to write about. What makes it aesthetically perfect for you? It, the velodrome is a beautiful space, a sort of sculpted bowl, mm -hmm. um, a, an amphitheater almost, where human speed is contained so that it can be witnessed. And th the space, when you walk into it for the first time, gives you goosebumps, it's beautiful. Um, and within that sculpted space, these very sculpted athletes ply their trade. They, they're dressed 
in one-piece skin suits, and they resemble you know, DC Comics superheroes. Right. The extraordinary outfits they wear, these are superhero outfits with mirrored visors so that you can't see their face, and this is deliberate. Right? Because it's so psychologically important, it's like poker. No, uh, at 50 miles an hour, you know, at 200 beats per minute of heart rate, you don't want your opponent to look round and see any weakness or any sign of the move you're about to make. And so they, they wear these mirrored visors and they, they're sort of unknowable. And yet, as soon as they finish racing and victory is won or lost and they go through the locker room and they change and they shower and they come out in jeans and a t-shirt, suddenly they're human beings again, you know, and you cut them and they bleed just like we do. And they have just the same problems holding their relationships together and doubting themselves and motivating themselves. I found them fascinating. What do you think it is about that particular sport that has led to all of this psychology? That's a good question. It's a unique combination of um, skill and power, I think. Um, the... Um, the tactics revolve around the particular speed of cycling. So in no other sport do you get the effect of drafting, of slipstreaming someone else. Um, well, outside of NASCAR, I suppose. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> but the no, American no, version yeah. in which we're seated. <laughs> sure. Right, okay. But no human-powered sport achieves sufficient velocity such that um, if you tuck in behind somebody, you're doing 40% less work than them, right? So actually no one wants to be in front until the very last second, mm -hmm. right? So you, you tend to win a sprint cycling race in the last tenth of a second, and you don't want to be in front until then. Right. So actually the, the dynamic of it means that they start off very slowly. It's choreographed. It's almost like a ballet. Um, you get these two competitors sometimes going so slowly that they have to lean against each other <laughs> to stay upright. Right? And it's a standoff. And then at some point, someone decides that they're going to go. And they might go slow. They might go quick. They might use the, the uphill side of the banking or they might go down. And that, there are loads of different ways that you can win that race apart from just using power. It's cat and mouse. Thank you, Chris Cleaves, very much for being here on Riders Talk. Our listeners and viewers can follow you on Twitter at, at Chris Cleave and at your website, chriscleave.com. Yep. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And the book, uh, the newest book is Gold. Thank you. Thank you. More information about any Writer's Talk guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. Join me next time for readings of the winners from the 2012 year-end writing competition brought to you by Writer's Talk and Barnes & Noble, the Ohio State University Bookstore. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. Keep writing.